Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. All right, here we go. First question. All right. If God is so good, how come he created evil? Anybody care to answer that? (laughs) Okay, here we go. If God is so good, how come he created evil? Um, Another way to ask that, I've heard this many, many times in my life, is if God is so loving, why does he allow bad things to happen to so many good people? Isn't that tough? That's kind of hard, isn't it? So uh, another thing is... it. Another question is, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he do something about all of the suffering that's in the world today? I've, I've heard that question so many times through the years, and I know that you have too. And there, you know, there are two kinds of questions. There are questions that get asked, and there are questions that don't get asked. And sometimes uh, these are some of the questions that just don't get asked, but we have them inside of us. So um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to attempt to answer four questions to the best of my ability. I'm not saying that I know everything, but I'm going to give you some things to think about. I'm going to give you some scriptures to go on, and, I, and hopefully um, you can get resolved inside of you some of these, uh, the answers to some of these very, very difficult questions. Um, the answer to the question, if God is so good, how come he created evil? There are basically two classifications of evil in the world today. Number one, there's what we call moral evil, and that's sin. And then there's what we call natural evil, and that's, uh, that's tied to suffering, like hurricanes and cancer and earthquakes and things like that. So there's basically two different kinds of evil that we find in the world today. The first time that the word evil is ever used in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 17, where God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you do, you will die. And so that's the first time that we see the word evil in the Scripture. So it's all the way back in the book of beginnings. It's in the second chapter of Genesis. And and it doesn't take very long for us to see how evil came into the earth. All we have to do is go one more chapter. One more chapter in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible said that Adam and Eve partook of that forbidden fruit. They were not supposed to do it. God said, don't do it. And they partook of it. And because of it, sin entered the human race. And when sin entered the human race, that opened the door to evil. So evil is in the world because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. That's why evil is in the world, and evil entered the human race. Any questions? Good so far? Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what I like to call the philosophy of evil. There are great philosophers that have lived and have died, obviously, philosophers like Augustine and philosophers like C.S. Lewis most recently, and they reasoned that evil is not an entity, it is not a thing, It is a reaction. Evil was not created by God. It was a reaction. 
that happened when sin came into the world. So it's the corruption of a, an otherwise good thing. Evil is a parasite that, needs, that feeds on a host. Evil's a parasite that feeds on a host. So to say that God created evil or that it, to say that God created that would be inaccurate. I don't think that God created evil. I think that evil is something that transpired because of the sin of mankind. So some people say to me, well, then how come God just doesn't get rid of evil in an instant? Well, the reason is because the Bible said that all of us were born in sin and in sin our mother conceived. So what that means is when we were physically born, we had a sin nature inside of us because of Adam and Eve's sin. And so if God was to immediately erase evil from the world, He would have to erase everybody off the face of the earth. Romans chapter 3 and 23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But now, Right now we know that we're redeemed. We know that we're, our sins are gone, that He's washed our sin away and remembers it as far as the east doesn't remember that it, them against us and, and has washed them as far as the east is from the west. We know that. We know that's what the Bible says. Okay? But we were still born in sin. So if God just got rid of evil when he saw it, then neither then none of us would have been able to grow up because the moment we were born we would have to have been erased from the face of the earth. So what's the answer? The Bible kind of gives us a little illustration in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 through 24 through 30, where the Bible talks about, in a parable that Jesus was giving, talks about letting the wheat and the tares grow together. Because if you take the tares out of the wheat field, before the wheat field has come into its maturity, then you will damage the root system of that wheat, and the wheat will die, and your harvest will die. So Jesus said in the parable, let the tares and the wheat grow together and when it comes harvest time, they will be able to separate the tares from the wheat. And we know that in theology or the study of God as when we give our life to Christ, when we come to the end of our journey, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and one day we're all going to stand before God. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible says that God will look at some and say, uh, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And there's others that he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So that is the theological uh, terminology or the type. Uh, the, the wheat and the tares is the type of that activity that's going to take place at the white throne judgment when God divides the sheep from the goats, the tares from the wheat, is what the Bible says. Now, sometimes you can't tell the difference between a tare and a wheat. And that's the reason you got to let them grow together sometimes. Uh, if I had a bowl of sugar here, if I had a cup of sugar here, I would show you the cup of sugar, and you would look at the sugar. Then I reach over here in another bowl and get a few grains of salt, drop it in the bowl of sugar, and stir it up. Tell you, why don't you go find that salt in this bowl of sugar? Well, the truth is, you're not going to be able to decipher the difference. There are some things that only God can do. And we need to allow Him to do that. So it's not our job to try to divide the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. It's our job to try to grow as a wheat, I guess you might say, or as, and, and produce good fruit for the kingdom of God. 
God has a plan to rid the world of evil. It's called Calvary. He has a plan to rid the world of evil. It's called Calvary. Thank God for Calvary. All right, the second question, three-part question. So, why doesn't God do something about all the suffering in the world? What about the hurricanes and the earthquake? Uh, <laughs> cancer, and uh, just what about all that? Um, the answer that I think that, that I can share today just from my heart is that we're live, we live in a world that is decaying. It's falling apart around us. It, and, and that decay is going on. If you don't believe it, take an apple, put it in a windowsill, and take a picture of it every day for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, look at the difference in that picture of that apple. That apple will eventually decay if you let it set there long enough. Eventually, it'll start stinking. It can even stink up an entire basket or bushel of apples, but eventually it'll start stinking and then eventually it'll just go back into the earth and the seeds that's on the inside of it will be planted and maybe an apple tree will grow, who knows. But the point is, it's decaying. The reason the, reason the apple is decaying is because it was picked. That means it was separated from its life source. Its life source was the tree. As long as the apple stayed connected to the tree, it continued to live, Right? Long as the apple stayed attached. Now, let's, let's uh, bring this over into our life. When man sinned, they were separated from their spiritual life source. Man was separated from his spiritual life source when he sinned. And so, the only way that we can continue to live is to participate in redemption, to participate in, in the work of Calvary. We give our life to Jesus and our body does not physically live forever, but our eternal spirit can live forever because we have attached ourselves back to the life source. But humanity stays detached from the life source. And because of that, then we live in a world that's decaying and hurricanes become the part, earthquakes and uh, tornadoes and, and uh, our bodies, you know, our physical bodies uh, are still under that curse. We're redeemed from the curse of the law, but our physical bodies still are participating in the overall curse of humanity. And so we, we die. We die. And so that's, uh, that's, I think, the reason that we have some of those things uh, going on in the world today. But God has a plan to, to deliver the world from pain and suffering. And that plan is found in Jesus. We give our life to Jesus. He comes in and gives, gives, He gave His life for us and He gives us eternal life and we live for Him. And one of these days when this physical body closes its eyes in death, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means that this body may die, but I'm not going to die. If you want to die, go ahead and die, but I'm not going to die. I'm... I'm to be absent from the body is to be present, present with the Lord. That's why on our Facebook page, our private page for members and regular tenders only, when someone goes home to be with the Lord, I never put they died. You'll notice that. I put they changed their address to heaven. Amen? 
Amen. Amen. So God has a plan to deliver us from that pain. And so we just need to be patient and try to live for the Lord. Okay? Now, here's what Billy Graham said. Y'all like Billy Graham? Billy Graham said this, I've read the last page of the Bible and it's going to turn out all right. Let me give you some scriptures here. In the NIV, Romans chapter 8 says, verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, listen very carefully, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation groans and travails waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. So, like Billy Graham said, we've read the last page of the Bible. We know everything's going to turn out okay. It's going to be all right. Okay, third question. All right, this is a tough one. And I I think for a lot of people um, struggling with this whole, you know, is God real? You know, um, like this man said, uh, one of one of the kids that came into the orphanage. Uh, you know, they they struggle with this, coming into to God's grace and love, and and and, and they, they question and, and and you know, if there's a God, why why is He so unfair? You know, why is God so unfair? I didn't have an easy road. I didn't have an easy walk. You know, I'm sitting here today interviewing pastor, but my story, and I'm sure a lot of people in this room, their life wasn't a cakewalk. You know, they're like, they're, they didn't get things handed to them, you know. And you're clean how long? Uh, three and a half years. Praise yeah. the Lord. So. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you today that in my experience, the things that I went through, made a story that I can share for his glory. And the things that I had had to go through, although they were hurtful, although the things that happened to me and the things that I did to try to destroy my body, God was still there in every moment. And he loved me through it, even when I didn't love myself. So, you, you, know, you know how we know that we're born again? It's when my story becomes his story. Amen. Amen. So why is God so unfair? Wow. I've, heard, I've, I've had that question so many times. <laughs> I, I, we, we have a child. and She's grown up, obviously. But she was the miss, it's not fair. How many has ever had a child that everything you, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. How many times have you heard that? That's not fair. That's not fair. I mean, I, and I just told her, I said, baby, life isn't fair. I said, life is not fair, you know? And so we blame God for things that isn't fair. So I want to ask you this question. Have you always been fair to God? Have we always been fair to God? I mean, have we always, 
Uh, how, how would, what if God looked at us and say, said, the way you're treating me is not fair? God doesn't do that. You know why? Because uh, he, he's, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so I think, it's, I think it's important when we have questions like this, we have to ask that question too. Am I being fair to God? I may not understand what's going on. I may not understand. I feel like the Bible says this, but something else is happening. And if God, why would God do this for someone but not do it for me? And all of that kind of thing. And so if we don't watch it, we start, we start blaming God for things that we brought on ourselves because of decisions that we made in the past. And so uh, we got to be very careful that we don't just uh, get on this fair and unfair train. But it's a good question. Why is God so unfair? Another way to ask it, I've had people ask me this, why was God so mean in the Old Testament and so loving in the New Testament? I've had people ask me that, and they, one uh, person asked me, they said, why did God just get rid of the Canaanites? Well, the Canaanites had 400 years to repent, and they didn't. They believed in bestiality, they believed in, 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 in sacrificing children to a god called Moloch, they... Uh, they sacrificed each other. They, they were a very brutal, mean uh, a group of people who was hell-bent on destroying God's chosen people. And so God finally just said, enough is enough. Now, that was before grace, but uh, He still said, enough is enough. And so for people to say, well, God's just not unfair because He wiped the Canaanites off the face of the earth. Well, how were the Canaanites treating God's people? How were the Canaanites? He, God was just kind of defending them. So um, let's uh, talk about this. If God were truly fair, all of us would deserve to be destroyed. Isn't that right? Why is God so unfair? Thank God God is not fair. Because if He was hell-bent on being fair, every last one of us would be wiped off the face of the earth. The Apostle Paul went through all kinds of things. If anyone had any reason to gripe and complain and moan and groan about God not being fair, it would be the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul found Christ on the road to Damascus. Bright light came out of heaven. The Bible said struck him to the earth and uh, he, he was transformed there. He went down to Damascus and a few days later was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and he began his ministry to the New Testament church. But before all of that, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He rose above his equals. He had a good job. He had a good life. Uh, he had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, career, if you want to call it that, in the Sanhedrin. So he was a very, very prominent and powerful person. Then he gives his life to Jesus, and now all of a sudden, people are trying to kill him. Jesus received, received 39 stripes one time. The Apostle Paul received 39 stripes five times. Five times. They beat his feet with rods and broke the bones in his feet so bad that they had to carry him around in a basket for a while. And during that time, they were trying to kill him, so they put him in the basket and put him over the wall of the city and dropped him on the other side of the wall of the city. But after they beat his feet, broke the, broke the bones in his feet and everything to try to stop the spread of the gospel, he sat down and wrote, how beautiful are the feet of them that carry the gospel of peace. Now the Apostle Paul could have said, it, it just isn't fair. There's other people preaching and they're not, they're not getting their feet broken. You know, I mean, he could have said things like that. 
but he was more focused on the grace of God. And here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he wasn't focused on whether God was being fair. He was focused on the goodness of God. And that is the, uh, that is the encouragement that I want to give you today. Life is not fair. Thank God, God is not fair. Now let me say this. God is not fair at times, but He's always just. He's always just. So we celebrate the fact that God is just. We have one more question, and it's kind of an interesting question. You have any questions before we get to this last question? Uh, actually, I do. Yeah. Um, I think as uh, Christians, and especially as me, um, coming in a few years ago and giving my life to Christ, I, I, I saw this, this huge move in my life. All these things are changing. I'm getting rid of my the old people in my life. I'm I'm bringing in new people. I see this extreme growth and, you know, and things are are going good and then I come going on a few years and I'm like it slowed down. It slowed down and and I think a lot of a lot of Christians it they 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 sometimes struggle with this this slowdown and they they want to be they want to be somewhere up here, and, and they saw coming in, they saw all these, these amazing things happening, and, you know, they get to a point where they, they ask God, and they start having an open dialogue with God, and they say, this is where I want to be, Lord, and I'm faithful, and I'm serving you, and I'm under you, and I, and I, want, to, I want to get there, Lord, and my question is, is, what do you say to those people, like, what, what is your response to those people that have been, been faithful, have been, been doing the walk, but yet they aren't seeing the results they thought they would have had already going one, two, three, four years in? Well, I'm going to answer your question right out of your question. Um, and you kept using the word saw, see, saw, see, saw, see. When you give your life to Jesus in the very beginning, Another way the Bible put it is the zeal of thine household God hath eaten me up. You're very zealous towards God. And the reason is because when you first give your life to Christ, you're seeing a whole lot of things. But the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And so there comes a time as we grow in God and we begin to mature in God that we have to serve God and trust God and believe God by faith rather than by what we see. Jesus has already done everything for you that He will ever do. He did it on Calvary. Whatever we get from God from that point forward, we access by faith. So in the beginning, the Bible says in Peter that newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that they may grow thereby. But then the Bible encourages, encourages us later on in the book of Corinthians that we're to grow up into Him in all things, understanding that we are all part of the body of Christ and each joint feeds one another and encourages one another and helps one another. And so there comes a time when we don't go by what we see, we go by what we know because we're walking by faith. So when, when you're four, four years in, 
and you're not seeing what you used to see, that's God calling you to walk by faith. Trust me. Believe me. In another way, here's what, he, here's what he's saying. Grow up. <laughs> Put the diapers away. Get rid of the passy. And grow up. Okay? So, that's a good question, though. Good follow-up. Um, uh, this is a loaded question, okay? I, I even heard somebody, uh, I heard someone, I heard that someone had told, well, someone told one of my daughters, said, well, I guess I'm going to go to church and get beat up. No, 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 no. You're not going to get beat up. You're going to get armed with some information here. Most people believe that tattoos are wrong, and people that talk about that, they believe they're wrong because of one scripture in the Bible, and that's this scripture right here, Leviticus 19, verses 26 through 28. And uh, I underlined some things in this scripture because I want to uh, highlight them in just a moment. But here's what the scripture says. It says, Ye shall not eat anything with the blood, neither shall ye use enchantment nor observe times. That's talking about horoscopes, uh, lucky times, unlucky times. Ye shall not round the corners of your heads, you know, bowl cut, Neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard, which means to round the corners of your beard. Ye shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you, I am the Lord. So they take this one little phrase right here, nor print any marks upon you, and they say the Bible says don't get tattoos. But they don't say anything about not eating anything with blood. They don't say anything about using enchantments. They don't say anything about horoscopes. They don't say anything about, uh, you know, having a bowl cut, uh, your hair, a bowl cut, or, or uh, rounding the corners of your beard. And, and they don't say anything about cutting in the flesh or anything. They just take this one little thing and they say, the Bible says don't print any marks upon yourself. First of all, I want to say that in order... To understand the scriptures, we have to study the scriptures in context. Studying the scriptures in context means we study the culture of that time. We study the languages of that time. We also study what's been going on theologically during that time. What was going on at this particular time when uh, this was being written in the book of Leviticus is there was a whole lot of back and forth with paganistic gods. And one of the ways that they would worship those pagan gods is they would cut themselves and they would ink themselves. They would mark themselves. They would identify themselves on the outside somehow by being a part of that particular religion. I'll give you an example. Elisha with the 400 prophets of Baal. It's in the book of Kings. The Bible said that Elisha got together with them and he said, let the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And the 400 prophets of Baal, all day and all night, they danced around and the Bible said that they did all kinds of things around that altar trying to call down fire. They finally got extremely desperate and they started cutting themselves because they were serving a pagan god. They were cutting themselves. They were causing the blood to flow. Well, why would they do that? Because everything that God does, the devil tries to simulate. So they were cutting themselves. And you know the story where the Bible said that God did, that their God, Baal, did not answer by fire. Elisha knelt down. 
He said, pour barrels of water on this sacrifice. Let's soak it down real good. Let's test this really, really good. And so they poured barrels of water on the sacrifice. Then they poured and filled up the trench around it. And they filled that full of water, the Bible said. Elisha knelt down. He didn't pray all day. He didn't pray all night. He prayed a 63-word prayer and fire came down from God out of heaven, consumed the sacrifice, and the Bible says, licked up the water that was in the trench. So God proved that day that He was God. And the 400 prophets of Baal were put to death, and Israel turned their, back, their, their hearts back to God, back to God. So we see in this particular passage of Scripture, in Leviticus chapter 19, we see in the illustration that I gave you, that there was paganistic things that was going on. There was paganistic rituals that was going on. So studying it in context, there are some, some things that I think that we need to talk about. The first thing that I think I need to point out is, for all of you young people, you need to understand something, okay? You're not always going to be young. And some of those tattoos that look cool right now, they might just sag later. They might not look as good as they, you know, my sister, God love her heart, one of my sisters, she got a tattoo in kind of an unmentionable place and she tried to pull her shirt down and show it to me several years ago and it was a, tat, it was a picture of a cat. And she said, oh, this artist is so good. I told her, I said, you know that cat's going to droop someday. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not going to be, she's 45 years old and she's like, you were right, Johnny, you were right. And so I, but that, the, but the thing that I want to point out is you've got to ask yourself a few questions. Number one, why do you want the tattoo? Is, is, a ta is having a tattoo, is that going to send you to hell? No, 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 no. Is it wrong to get a tattoo? Uh, only, only in some situations, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But not all tattoos are wrong, according to the Scripture. So let's talk about, let's talk about the why. Why would you get a tattoo? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that we're supposed to honor our parents. If you're living with your parents and your parents tell you to not get a tattoo, then you need to honor your parents and not get your tattoo. Get it when you grow up. If, you're, if you still want it when you grow up, get it when you grow up and you're on your own. But if you're not on your own and you're living with your parents and you go get a tattoo when they told you not to, then you're getting that tattoo out of rebellion, and that's what makes that tattoo wrong. Because you're doing it out of rebellion. Does God forgive rebellion? Absolutely. God forgives, and we'll talk about this next week, God forgives everything except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We're going to answer that question next week. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and all of that? So we're going to talk about that. But that's the only sin that the Bible says that God will not forgive. So getting a tattoo is, is not always a sin. I don't think it's always a sin. It's the motives behind it that can become sin. So if you're in rebellion and you're getting a tattoo because you're in rebellion, the rebellion is what's wrong. So don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Honor your parents until the day they die. Honor them until the day after they die. One of these days you'll reach that, that uh, uh, point where you are a grown-up adult and you're living on your own. But when you're in your mom and dad's house, it's their house, their rules. Honor them, okay? All right, 
Now, the second thing that I want to share with you here is, uh, and I had to make myself a few notes here because I'm 51. Okay. <laughs> the second thing is, um, do you have any questions so far? Oh, no. I just saw you moving like, like you had something. I feel like I'm really doing all the talking here. So you don't have, you're good. Yes. Okay, all right. All right. Like, don't get a tattoo of your girlfriend's son because she might not be the one that you marry. And how are you going to explain that to your future wife someday? Oh, oh, hold on. I got something. You got Diana right here, and you married a Sarah. So how are you going to I had a, a friend in high school. His whole arm put a girl's name on it. That was his girlfriend at the time. And I was like, this is not a good idea. Like, you guys might not last. Lo and behold, they didn't last. So now he has some girl's name, like, all the way down his arm. Yeah. So, <laughs> First Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, uh, speaks of adorning ourselves. And it, it talks about, well, I could, let's see, First Peter... 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Here we go. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. So God's Word teaches us that we should not try to identify ourselves by uh, uh, adorning ourselves. If we ink to draw attention to ourselves, that's wrong. That's the wrong motive to get a tattoo. Well, I'm going to go get myself a tattoo and everybody's going to notice it and, and all of that and so then we'll be, be able to tie and I can be the center of attention. That's pride. You don't want to do that. So the underlying motive to get a tattoo, to draw attention to yourself is wrong. So don't do it for that reason. Okay? Now, the third thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, addresses having proper motivations uh, as far as fitting in. As a Christian, your identity is not in your tattoo, it's in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible talks about writing upon the tables of our heart. We carry Jesus in our heart. God, listen to me very closely, God is more concerned with what's in your heart than what's on your skin. Okay, so I don't think that we as Christians, I don't think that we should find fault with people who have tattoos. I've got people, now you, you all know Charles, he has that sleeve, that piano thing on his arm. When he's worshiping, he'll throw his arm up like that. When he first came here and started doing worship, one of his questions was, do I need to always wear long sleeves because I know this offends people? And I told him, I said, no, that's not necessary here. That's not necessary. But he tat tatted uh, up, up his arm with, uh, with a piano. Obviously, he loves, he, he loves music. But his identity is in Christ. It's not in the ink on his arm. So if you're getting a tattoo because you're in the middle of an identity crisis, the answer is not getting inked. The answer is not a tattoo. The answer is getting your heart right with God. I took Bishop Johnson down to see a pastor friend of mine in Fort Myer whose name is also Bishop Johnson, and uh, that was fun. So uh, I would say Bishop Johnson, and they would both answer at the same time. So, but anyways, they're going to be helping him set up a primary school over there in, uh, in Jamaica, uh, one of our, one of our uh, churches. 
And uh, so we were sitting there talking, and this pastor knew that I was getting ready to do this, and he began to unbear his heart to me, and he began to talk to me about his son who is inking up and things like that, and the subject of identity came up, and we began to talk about identity. And um, he made this statement. He said, have you ever noticed that the farther people get away from God, the more they do things to try to identify themselves? And so that's not always the case, but sometimes it is. So don't try to get a tattoo for your personal identity. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. Listen, you can't get a better identity than that. You cannot get a better identity than that. Then the last thing, you have anything else there before I, the last scripture? The last scripture that I want to share here is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, um, verses 19 through 20, where the Bible says that we, our bodies are, let me read it to you. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So if my body is the temple of God, and this is where God dwells, then why do I want to put skulls and crossbones on it? How do you think that God would feel if He came into you, into your heart, and into your life, and you went around saying you were a Christian, but on the outside of your body, it was promoting demonic things? So I think the kind of tattoos that we get, if we're going to get tattoos, I think the kind of tattoos that we get would be very important. Okay? One of the questions that we got in the first service was, when I give my life to Christ, do I have to go try to get my tattoos taken off? I said, no, 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 no. God saved your heart. He saved your life. He, you know, your body is one of these days is going to disintegrate and, and, and die. So, uh, no. Uh, is a tattoo going to send me to hell? No. I don't think a tattoo is going to send you. Well, what if it's a skull and a crossbones? Before I got saved, I got all of that kind of stuff. He redeemed you. He redeemed your heart. He forgave you of your sins. And so you don't need to go around and try to get all of that corrected. If you want to get it adjusted or something like that, that's totally and completely up to you. So my, my answer to you is I don't think that tattoos are necessarily wrong if they're the right kind of tattoos. I think there are some tattoos that would be wrong, okay? But um, I think the bigger question is why do I want it? And is the reason for having it, is that, is that a good reason? And uh, just so everybody knows, no, I don't have a tattoo. And neither does Mama D. I was just thinking about in my generation. Yeah. You'd, my mom would take a pen away from me if I wrote on myself. Mine too. So I kind of blame her, you know. <laughs> but no, I don't have a tattoo. But culturally, there's been such a shift from a lot of us to this generation. It's like no big deal, just right all over myself. And I'm just wondering, what is that cultural shift? Is it in response to something or identification? Or, you know, just what, what do you think would be... Are they defining themselves? I don't know. I, I, think I don't I, understand millennials. I have grandchildren who are millennials, but I don't understand mm -hmm. them. Well, you, well you, you all know I've been studying this for some time now because I feel like that if we're going to 
when the harvest of this generation. And people say, well, they just don't want to come to church. Just let them go to hell. No, I'm not going to let them just go to hell. I love them too much. I'm not going to. Well, only 11% of them want to serve God. Well, why does only 11% want to serve God? The reason is because we were too busy in my generation trying to make a buck and we couldn't make a commitment for Sunday school. So we phased Sunday school out and now we have the results of a generation who did not grow up in Sunday school and they do not have, they do not have the foundation that we had. And we're expecting them to have the same drive to serve God that we have, but we came from a different place than they did. So, we, so, so I think to answer your question, and this is just from my studies, I think we have a generation that's in an identity crisis. And I think they're looking for something to belong to. We found our identity in Jesus Christ. We belong to the family of God. We're, we are God's kids. And they can be too, but they don't have the foundation that we had. And so they... So we have to correct that. We have to, we have to embrace them. First of all, we, we have to find out where they are. Where they are is on social media. That's where they are. You know, I mean, you're not going to go, well, let's get together and go knock on doors. You know, well, that worked 40 years ago. That worked 30 years ago. But if you go knock on someone's door around here in this neighborhood, you might get shot. I'm not kidding. So today's knocking on doors is... Social media, Instagram, Facebook, although a lot of them are off of Facebook. They figure that's for old people now. Uh, Snapchat, Twitter, uh, Tumblr, all, all of those. Yes, I love this man right here. He loves this generation. He loves them. I love them. They, mm. are, they, are, they are my heart. That's right. But I, I, I got, we got married 51 years ago. There was a time when the man was supposed to be the man. Mm-hmm. But I was harsh. I'm ashamed of those things. But I had a godly woman. Mm-hmm. And I'm the one that carries the tattoos now. She tattooed my heart with her tears. Mm-hmm. And then prayed for me when I was mm-hmm. being a man of the house, harsh with the little children. Now I carry that tattoo. It's before me all the time. And when I see the young men wanting to be the man of the house, I think. Be the servant in the house. Serve your family. Serve your wife. Serve your children. Love them. Cherish them. And especially teach the young men in your house how to how to thank you, baby. How to treat their wife right. by the way you treat their mom. Right. Amen. Titus chapter two. The Bible says that the older men are supposed to teach the younger men and the older women are supposed to teach the younger women. Um, and you say, well, they won't listen. Well, go where they are. It's not their responsibility to get them to listen. It's your responsibility. You're the mature one. And just writing them off because they're rebellious is not the answer. We have to love them more than we hate what they do. 
You understand? We have to love them more than we hate what they do. And, and I love them, and I'm not going to give up on them. I, I, I can see a generation raising up who has a passion for God. They're not interested in fake. They don't give a rip about how beautiful the lights are and, and all of that kind of thing. And this is something very hard for not so much, because I'm generation, what they call Generation X. The generation before me was the baby, baby boomers. Then generation below me, which is my children, are millennials. And then the generation uh, now, the small ones, are called Gen Z or Generation Z. So you got X, Y, Z. But the baby boomers, and especially the greatest generation, their whole drive was let's get together, let's have a fundraiser, let's build a massive building, let's build a, a monstrosity of a building, let's build God a cathedral. And it'll be there for a long time. And that's what mattered to them. Millennials don't care about buildings. They just don't care. Can we meet at the coffee shop? Can we have a small group in the backyard? Can we just meet over at somebody's house and talk and things like that. That's what they're interested in. And those of us who are used to building the buildings, those of us that are used to all of those types of things, we have to try to understand that shift in their thinking in order to try to help them discover God. For me, I, I'm to the point now where I don't even care about a building. I've said it for years. Why can't we do what Jesus did? Let's just go buy a field, build an amphitheater, and have church outside. Think about it. You don't have to keep the place up. You don't have to pay electricity. You don't have to pay water. You can spend all that money on evangelism and winning people to Jesus. Tell them to show up in their shorts and their t-shirts and sit in their cars if they want to and roll the window down and listen to a message about Jesus Christ in an open field somewhere. You know what? You would win them by the thousands if you were like that because they are sick and tired of monuments built to men and made to men. They just want Jesus. Amen. They just want Jesus. And so the quicker we can try to understand that instead of try to change that, the more effective we're going to be in communicating the message of the gospel of Jesus to them. Think about it. One of these days, this building's going to fall down. That car that you're driving is going to fall down. The only thing of value that you have to pass on, it's not your bank account. I don't care how much money you've got. Somebody come along one day and either steal it or spend it. The only thing of value that you have to pass on is your faith. Amen. That's it. And so we need to work on what matters. And that's our faith. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.